And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me on the phone line today is Dr. Kevin Sherritt. He is pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern. Kevin, it's great to have you with us today. Good to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Kevin, uh, I should mention up front that uh, we've had you on the program previously, and uh, perhaps what our listeners may not realize is that you are now living here in the Hudson Valley, um, in fact, have been since about mid-January, as um, having taken the reins, as it were, um, after Pastor John Vance retired from Westminster. You're now the senior pastor there, so uh, it's a great pleasure for me, of course, being your friend, to uh, see you more often. So it's it's great to have you back in the Hudson Valley now. Well, thanks, Dan. It's good to be back here, and it's good to uh, be a Westminster Presbyterian Church. It has a wonderful and a rich heritage, and of course I'm from the Hudson Valley area, so I love this area as well. So I'm, I'm very glad that God in His kind providence brought us back here. Mm. Amen. Um, today our discussion is about Scripture and tradition. Um, in the uh, Protestant tradition, we have this little saying called sola scriptura, and I'm wondering if maybe we could get started uh, on this discussion today on Scripture and tradition with uh, kind of peeling the layers of the onion, um, maybe using this this phrase as the starting point. Um, when Protestants talk about sola scriptura, um, what are they referring to? Well, sola scriptura was a sort of Latin catchphrase that um, was part and parcel of the 16th century Reformation. And um, it, it was in its original context. It means... Scripture supreme or um, the sole uh, ultimate norm is Holy Scripture for the life of the Christian and the life of the Church. But it, it is easily confused and mishandled on the ground, um, uh, especially among us evangelicals. It, it's not an assertion of Scripture in such a way that it invalidates tradition. It's really, Sola Scriptura is really about the appropriate relationship between Scripture and tradition. And so, what the Reformers were trying to assert was that, sure, there's, there's um, the, the tradition of the Church, the apostolic tradition, the tradition of the Fathers, and we ought to revere that and honor that and receive that, but it, is, it doesn't have the same standing as Scripture, which is the supreme norm, the norm which um, is not normed by other norms, as, the, as it was said. Um, and so the idea here is not that the authority of Scripture eliminates um, church authority or traditional authority or the authority of the early councils and creeds and confessions. It's simply that Scripture is the supreme norm, not the only norm. And often people talk about this in, uh, in American Protestant circles uh, in, in a kind of um, sloppy way, I think, um, in which it sounds as if Scripture is the only norm, and that would be known as solo scriptura, only Scripture, not sola scriptura, which is Scripture as the supreme norm. So, for example, a, a lot of Christians think that it's just them, Jesus, and the Bible. The Bible's their only authority. But that is not what the Reformation meant. The Reformation by Sola Scriptura meant that the Bible sits atop as, as the only infallible norm, the supreme norm, the Word of God in a unique and, and a categorically different way 
but it sits atop a matrix of norms. The family is a norm. Parents have normative authority. The church has authority. Tradition has authority. Councils and creeds have authority. And once you see Sola Scriptura in this light, you can revere um, the historical church, the tradition of the church, the creeds and the councils of the church, and, and nevertheless maintain the supremacy of Scripture. But when you, when you rip the supremacy of Scripture out of its historical context, uh, you end up with a um, shrinking down the role in, in the life of the Christian of the church, and the church's conversation and, and thinking in the spirit over 2,000 years in producing creeds and councils and guidance and documents for us to follow. So um, it's a lot like, Dan, I think a, a good analogy here would be if someone had a pocket constitution and thought, well, I don't need Supreme Court decisions or law school or any of the American legal tradition. I just read the constitution for myself and decide what's constitutional and what's not. That would be, you know, solo constitution. But that's not how the Constitution functions in a, in a genuine society. In a, in a, you know, it functions as the supreme norm in the, on top of a bunch of other norms. Right. So we're Protestants. We love um, the Bible. But we realize that um, um, we, we don't read the Bible in isolation, as you pointed out. Um, we, we have an appreciation for um, church history, the traditions as they've been handed down to us. I, I think one of the areas that, that really ties into that and helps us understand and appreciate this better is um, the, the books of the Bible themselves. You know, if I, um, I'm, I'm relatively uneducated, really, in, in terms of theology compared to uh, many doctors of the church and yourself, um, if I were to um, have a collection of, of sacred writings and have to choose which ones were, let's say, canonical, uh, I'd probably fall flat on my face. Right, right. So, so that raises an interesting point, right? So, <clears throat> excuse me, and it often comes up in these questions of Sola Scriptura, um, namely that Scripture doesn't come with an inspired table of contents, right? We, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't just drop down from heaven, and it doesn't tell us these books are in Scripture and these books are not. It is completely true and correct to acknowledge that our dependency here is on the historical church. That the church, we believe providentially under the guidance of the Spirit, sifted through the books and, and, and was able to hand down a canon. Now, but we believe that that doesn't mean that the church is the final authority any more than believing that the framers are the final authority and not the Constitution they handed down to us. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it, it is true that the church is our mother, and she hands down things to us, and she nourishes us. But from a Protestant point of view, anyway, our belief is that the Church acknowledged, the Church confessed, the Church received, and did not create the canon. Nevertheless, it was the Church that received it, and so um, we, we have a debt there, historically, to the historic Church. Now, it was done, you know, sporadically by various local councils and stuff. It wasn't necessarily done by one you know, structure of the visible church, just gradually these books came to impinge upon and impress themselves on the conscious of, consciousness of the church as the Word of God, and the church submitted to the authoritative, you know, the intrinsic authority of these books. So there's two things we have to avoid here. One is the notion that we got the books without reference to the historical church. No, we are bound and in the debt of the historical church for having these books. 
But the other mistake would be to say, well, therefore, the church is somehow the final authority as to what's you know canonical, whereas we say, no, no, what the church did here was they submitted, they obeyed, mm-hmm. they acknowledged, they confessed that the Word of God has its own, um, its own power intrinsically within it. And so I think, again, just an understanding of how we got the canon helps us to realize Scripture cannot be abstracted from the history of the Church. It comes to us through that history. Mm-hmm. Now, does Scripture itself point to the role of the Church in being guided by the Spirit and truth in selecting the Scripture, <laughs> if well, you know what I'm saying? Yes, it, but, it, but it's not in a, in a sort of way where you can just point to one text. It's sure. a whole pattern. Like, if, let's say, so let's look what happens. God speaks His Word and creates the world. So the, the Word is always primary. Not written yet, but the Word is primary. The Word is before creation, and the Word, the proclaimed Word, is before the Church. The, in one sense, the Reformation is about the supremacy of the Word of God over all things, and that mm. goes back uh, not just to the Church, but to the creation of the world. And from the creation of the world all the way down to Mount Sinai, uh, the Word of God was not written in authoritative, inspired form, right? And we have a tradition from the creation of the world all the way down to Moses. The Word of God is preserved by the Spirit, by God's kind providence, in and through um, the history of the patriarchs and, and the forging of the nation of Israel. So, and then eventually Moses writes the Word down, he writes the law, he writes the creation account, and that account becomes the only supreme public norm for the people of Israel from then on. Same thing happens from then on with the history of the conquest and the history of the judges and the history of the kings and the prophets. We acknowledge that there are long periods of time in the Old Testament when the Word of God is in oral form, and it's carried in the bosom of the community. But once the Word becomes written, once Isaiah, for example, dies and his prophetic oracles are written, the appeal of the subsequent community is to the oracles of Isaiah and the oracles of Jeremiah, not oral tradition about Jeremiah or Isaiah. And we see the same thing in Jesus. He appeals to what is written, what is written, what is written, even though there was a fairly you know, uh, uh, robust and large oral Jewish law that he could have drawn from. And he does allude to it, but he never alludes to it as a public authoritative standard equal with Scripture. And so when you come to the New Covenant, yes, the preaching, the apostolic preaching, Jesus' preaching and the preaching of the apostles precedes the writing of the New Testament. But that is not really an anti-Protestant point. where We we confess that the Word precedes the Church, that the Church is a creature of the Word. And the question becomes, when the Word gets written, what then is the final um, source to which we appeal. And we think that the pattern throughout the whole history of God's dealing with men, um, it's much more complex than most Protestants admit. I just tried to briefly outline it. But it nevertheless supports, I think, the notion that when the Word of God is finally written, that written Word takes supreme authority. All right, that's helpful. So today we're talking about Scripture and tradition. On the phone line with me today is Dr. Kevin Sherritt. I I appreciate the fact that you're saying that this is 
complex, um, we could say nuanced. It's not a simple-minded thing. It's not like, uh, as you've pointed out, that we're not talking about solo scriptura. We're talking about sola scriptura. Um, So the Bible is our authority, and yet it's not the Bible alone with me, just the Bible and me in a room. But um, one, one of the real simple things is that I need to be in the context of the fellowship of believers. I need to regularly join myself, assembly together to worship Christ and to hear his word preached. You know, one of the questions that comes up might be, um, what is it about preaching that is really um, kind of unique? What, what is it about preaching? Well, what it is about preaching is that in the act or the event of preaching, the risen Jesus who speaks, who is the prophet, right, who is eloquent, who addresses the church, he is, uh, as John Calvin used to say, putting his words in the, in the, in the mouth of a weak and frail uh, creature of clay, namely the, the minister, the, the, the pastor, the preacher of the gospel. And so Jesus came preaching the gospel, announcing it, right? And uh, the apostles preached the word. And so it, preaching shows us that God doesn't simply just drop his word down from heaven directly to individuals. It shows us that he used means and those means were, you know, the preaching of, of, of the prophets and the preaching of the apostles, and now the preaching of the ministry in the church. And that is where, in a unique way, we hear the Word of God. The Spirit works in and with and through the preached Word to minister, to comfort, to build up, to encourage, and to edify the saints. So there's something about the proclamation of the Gospel. You can see this all through the book of Acts. You can see this in Paul. Uh, a great example of this is at the end of Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, where Paul is talking about putting on our spiritual armor and, and um, engaging in warfare. And then he says, pray always for all the saints. And then he says, pray for me also, that my mouth might be opened, that I might proclaim the mystery of the gospel fearlessly and, and boldly. So Paul's acknowledging that the mystery of the gospel is something which is proclaimed, and he pray, he, pray, he asks the Ephesian Christians to pray for him that the Spirit might empower that proclamation. Mm. One of the things that comes to mind also about uh, Scripture and tradition is um, not only the preaching that takes place uh, in the worship service, there's also uh, events, um, we call them sacraments. Uh, I wonder if you could touch briefly upon that. How does that tie into Scripture and tradition? The sacraments are seals, signs and seals of God's covenant with us, and they, if you will, visibly seal or reaffirm or confirm the gospel that's proclaimed in the, in the Word. And the sacraments draw their authorization from Christ, and we see in the New Testament that the sacraments point to Christ and His work. And in the New Testament, we see two sacraments, the Lord's Supper, and baptism, because in both of those sacraments, you are participating in the whole work of Jesus Christ. There are other uh, rites and rituals which are, if you will, sacramental, but they don't give us union and communion with the crucified and risen Christ in the way that baptism and the Lord's Supper do, so they are unique. So we, we affirm and embrace two sacraments largely because of sola scriptura, and we embrace the sacraments as necessary because... Where, you know, for lots of reasons, uh, they, the Scripture authorizes them, but we're embodied creatures, and so we hear the Word proclaimed, but then we get to eat and drink communion with Jesus, 
and have that word, if you will, placed into our hands and placed into our mouths and sealed and, and, and affirmed to us for our own comfort and edification. Mm. I, um, I love to uh, witness baptisms. I love to participate with, with God's people in, in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Um, it's, um, it's almost like... Um, if it's if it's not there in the worship service, it's almost like I've missed something. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a fittingness to the supper yeah. being at in, in in a worship service because it was the way that Jesus sealed his whole life's ministry. It's what yeah. he chose to leave us at the end of his work. Yeah, yeah. As a matter to, as a way to remember him. I wanted to touch briefly upon um, something that it's going to. You know, none of these questions are rehearsed, so I, I hope it's not taking you too far off. Um, atheists and, um, you know, living in this world, we have naysayers, those who don't love Christ, obviously, and don't believe his word. Um, I hope this isn't too far uh, off topic, but uh, atheists will sometimes use, uh, it seems, some of the biblical principles or even sometimes verses from Scripture to essentially try to embarrass the Christian in an attempt to show that Christianity is false. Their emphasis might be, you guys are not loving each other, or that sort of thing. Um, I know we're talking about Scripture and tradition, but can you briefly talk about how to communicate to those who don't love the Lord, and um, yet hold the line, uh, be orthodox in our belief, and yet be... um, pleasant to those who disagree with us. Does Scripture and tradition give us any guidelines in that area? Well, that's a far-ranging question. It sure is. I know. I surprised um, you with it. Yes. Um, obviously, there's a whole tradition of thought in the Church on bearing witness and apologetics and how to do that, and there's a couple different schools and approaches, but um, a couple things come to mind. One is, um, this is sort of we might call this a concrete, practical application of sola scriptura. Mm-hmm. In other words, when it comes to engaging unbelievers, Scripture completely governs how we do that. Right? It's the supreme norm. Yes, there are traditional ways and methods of doing apologetics, but Scripture is our supreme norm. And so it, it, it does really two things for us here, I think. It talks about us as the um, defenders of uh, the apologists for the faith, those who give a defense. And it talks about our character. It says, you know, we're to be meek and gentle and give a, give a, uh, an account of the hope that is within us with meekness and fear. So part of what Scripture is concerned about is transforming us to be faithful witnesses, to be able to witness. And the other thing that Scripture does is it says, you know, Jesus is Lord. He's the supreme authority. He's not verified or validated by any other authority, whether it be history or archaeology or reason or any other, you know, cultural norm. Jesus is Lord, and so therefore, what we should do with all kindness and respect and love is use the Holy Scriptures unapologetically when um, talking to them. In other words, we stand on Scripture from the beginning of our encounter with unbelievers. We presuppose its authority because we we're under its authority. We cannot take ourselves out from under its authority. So mm-hmm. it's a lot like having a sword that the unbeliever doesn't believe in. Well, you just cut them with the sword, and, <laughs> and they'll start to believe in its authority.
authority. You know, it may be true that the unbeliever will say, I don't believe in the authority of Scripture or the infallibility of Scripture or the, the divine inspiration of Scripture. But while it's reasonable to have some conversations about that, the main thing is not to forget to use it, mm. to confess it. Okay. So Scripture binds us, maybe a way to summarize an answer to your question is, Scripture binds us as people, the kind of character we're to have, and it binds us with respect to method, the way in which we are to do apologetics. Mm. We can never do apologetics as if Scripture is not the Word of God. Mm. Yes. Thanks for that. Sorry to spring it on you so so abruptly. Not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have uh, maybe five minutes left. Um, As I go to church this Sunday, this Lord's Day, and worship with God's people, um, is it okay for me to think about those who have passed on? I know some churches have um, like a cemetery even, and you almost have to walk past the tombstones. That must be a vivid reminder. Uh, How are we to think of those saints who have passed on before us in light of Scripture and tradition? Well, I think that Scripture teaches us that there is one communion of the saints, right, in heaven and on earth. It spans heaven and earth. For example, Ephesians 3 can speak of the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Or more vividly, Hebrews 12 shows us the church, and this is the church on earth, assembled in the heavenly Zion with myriads of angels Mm. and with the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So we are in communion with the church of all ages, the church above and the church below, the church triumphant, now gone on to their reward, and the church militant still fighting on earth. And, um, and so Scripture teaches us to have a reverent respect for the whole body of Christ on earth and in heaven throughout time. And that can't be done if it's just, you know, me, Jesus, and the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is, we would say that nevertheless, we don't see that Scripture would endorse prayers, say, uh, to saints who've passed on, mm-hmm. right, things like that. So we're, we're trying to allow Scripture to govern our conception of the communion we have with the saints who've passed on. But obviously, if you look at the way the saints who've passed on are used in Hebrews 11, they're used as pious examples to stimulate faith and obedience. They're not used as intercessors. Mm. So again, we, we want to confess the communion of the saints, believe it's a real thing and a living thing, but we want to use their examples, their lives, the memory of their piety to stimulate us and, and, and have that regulated in such a way that we don't deviate from Scripture. Mm. Okay. I guess my last question is um, the use of um, a couple of creeds during the worship service. Uh, some might object to that as being overly tradition and not Scripture-based. I'm referring here to the Apostles and Nicene Creed. Uh, in closing, could you comment on that briefly? Well, again, this gets to this question of sola scriptura. is not solo scriptura. I mean, creeds are inevitable for a number of reasons. One is, uh, we don't have time to do this here, but there are, there are essentially embryonic creeds and creedal statements right in the Bible. Mm-hmm going all the way back to Israel's history. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, the Shema of Israel. There are creedal statements that Paul cites in his letters that 
all, almost all scholars would agree are essentially um, primitive Christian creeds and confessions. But the point is, everyone is going to have to say what they think the Bible says about something. So it's not enough simply to say, I believe in the Bible. The next question is, okay, what do you believe the Bible says about the Trinity? Right? And at that right. point, you're confessing, you're, you're giving a creed. It may not be written down, but all churches have creeds. Some, some are written, some are not. So the idea of confessing our faith and having creeds is, built, is, is taught by Scripture, and it's inevitable. Even churches which say they have no creed but Christ, you know, no law but the Bible, that kind of thing, that's a creed. Right? Sure. That, that's a creed. If you ask those, those brothers and sisters, well, what do you believe about baptism? They're going to tell you what they think the Bible teaches. And that's all the creed is. It's a community's way of saying, we believe the Bible teaches this, and therefore we confess it. And so creeds not only um, are no threat to sola scriptura, they're actually demanded by it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, today we've been talking about scripture and tradition. On the phone line with me is Dr. Kevin Sherritt senior pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. And maybe you have a question for Pastor Sherritt. Uh, please feel free to email us. We'll forward that to him. Our email address here at the station is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. And uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. And a quick reminder to our listeners, uh, this entire broadcast is up on our website. Check it out. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. And just check under the link, the tab that's entitled Resources. And again, our email address, if you wish to contact us, if you have a question for Pastor Sherritt, is ministry at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Quick reminder also, please join us next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer.